Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Luda Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figuilevi Lati. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, concerns of the killings in Nigeria's Kaduna state. Amnesty International accuses U.S. forces of killing civilians in Somalia. And South African parties vow to respect electoral code of conduct ahead of elections. In economics news, Kenya's Simba Cement approved to buy Semtech. And in sports news, Sundowns to face Al-Akhli in Champions League quarterfinals. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will address the Human Rights Day commemoration at the George Debe Sports Ground in Sharpville in southern Gauteng later this morning. The day has its origins in the events that unfolded at Sharpville and at Langa Township in the Western Cape Province on the 21st of March in 1960 when apartheid police attacked protesters during peaceful anti-pass marches and killed 69 people. Ntebe Mukobo reports. The 2019 Human Rights Day commemoration takes place under the theme The Year of Indigenous Languages, Promoting and Deepening a Human Rights Culture, and the objective is to amplify efforts to preserve, promote and revitalize endangered languages. Government says this will also help to affirm that the country is committed to human rights for all and to emphasize that the Bill of Rights promotes linguistic diversity and encourages respect for all language rights. Just after 10 this morning, President Cyril Ramaphosa will lay a wreath at the Sharpville Memorial site to honor the over 60 people who died on that fateful day. The president will also address the commemoration events at the nearby George Tabe Sports Ground later in the day. A week after Cyclone Adai hit Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, rescue teams are still racing to find and help survivors of the heavy floods. Aid workers say thousands of people are still on roofs and stuck in trees waiting to be rescued from the flooding. At least 200 people have died in Mozambique and 98 in Zimbabwe. But the death toll is likely to rise as rescuers are still finding bodies. The cyclone also knocked out Mozambican electricity exports to South Africa, exacerbating power cuts. The International Red Cross in the Mozambican city of Beira has meanwhile warned that thousands of people are still waiting to be rescued. Ian Vell from the charity Save the Children says aid organizations are struggling to cope with the scale of the disaster. 
the challenges of access are, are significant and uh, that's partly why the international community has asked for additional air assets to be provided and, and, incre- and, and the cost of also accessing, which is why the need for additional funding. So everything now is about getting additional surge teams into place, getting the pre-positioned stocks which are in country to the, the location where they're needed and making sure that's all being done in a coordinated effort. Burkina Faso's Ministry of Education has confirmed two teachers have been killed in the country after being kidnapped. They were kidnapped on the 11th of March and buried on Tuesday. According to a government source, the goal of the kidnappers was to scare the teachers into abandoning their posts in the region. Both teachers were working in the town of Djibou, where teachers are regularly threatened. Schools have been targeted by the groups who are opposed to Western education. And New Zealand has announced it will ban all types of semi-automatic weapons used in the Christchurch terror attacks. The country's gun laws have been in the spotlight since a gunman killed 50 people at two mosques last Friday. A buy-back scheme is set is to be set up for ban, banned weapons and measures would be imposed to prevent a run on buying before the law comes in. The scale of the attack has caused a worldwide outcry heightened by alleged shooter 28-year-old Brenton Tarrant's use of social media to live stream the carnage. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says she expects new legislation to be in place by the 11th of April. Today I'm announcing that New Zealand will ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons. We will also ban all assault rifles. We will ban all high-capacity magazines. In short, every semi-automatic weapon used in the terrorist attack on Friday will be banned in this country. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Amnesty International has released a report which accuses the United States of killing 14 civilians in military air bombardment in an area controlled by Somalia's Al-Shabaab militants. But the United States has vehemently denied the accusation, maintaining that the airstrike killed Al-Shabaab militants. Channel Africa's James Shimayula has more. The report released by Amnesty International today is titled The Hidden U.S. War in Somalia. Civilian casualties from airstrikes in Lower Shebele, Somalia. According to Amnesty International, the report comprises the first in-depth investigation that confirms civilian deaths in the United States military air bombardment in Somalia. The report refutes repeated claims by the United States Africa Command in short AFRICOM that the U.S. has caused zero civilian casualties despite a tripling of airstrikes in Somalia under the Trump administration. And in a tweet earlier today, Wednesday, AFRICOM said, and I quote tersely, since 2017, AFRICOM has carried out 110 airstrikes, killing more than 100 Al-Shabaab terrorists. End of AFRICOM tweet. 
To get the nitty-gritty of Amnesty International's report, I spoke exclusively to the London-based Human Rights Organization's director for East Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Great Lakes regions, Dr. Joanne Nyanyuki. She discloses the number of civilians that have been killed in five of the United States military airstrikes. We have documented as Amnesty International 14 killings and eight injuries to civilians occurring in five airstrikes out of the more than 100 airstrikes that we have documented. And these attacks are in violation of um, international humanitarian law and could essentially amount to war crimes. When you say war crimes, does it mean that uh, you plan to take the case to the International Court of uh, Justice in The Hague? No, that is not our intention. Our intention is to raise the awareness of what the U.S. government has been doing in Somalia, of the increase in airstrikes which has occurred in the last two years. And this has been as a result of the executive directive signed by President Trump in March of 2017, which allowed the U.S. to carry out strikes and weekend safeguards against civilians, essentially giving the U.S. government the capacity to carry out strikes and target any adults of military age, a male, anyone in, seen in proximity with al-Shabaab, and especially in areas which are deemed to be sympathetic of al-Shabaab. And the result of this has been increase in airstrikes, increase in civilian casualties, especially in the area which we documented, which is in the lower Shabele area. Why is it that uh, it has taken you many years uh, to come up with this uh, report of uh, civilian deaths? The increase in airstrikes has been from 2017. In the last nine months of 2017, we documented as Amnesty 34 airstrikes. In 2018, we documented 47. And in the first two months of this year alone, 24 airstrikes. And um, we have faced numerous challenges in documenting these strikes, first because of security concerns, limitations in being able to access victims and witnesses, and knowing very well that these are attacks which occur in al-Shabaab areas. We have challenges in even placing phone calls, secure phone calls to these um, witnesses and, um, and family members of those who are injured or those who are killed. When I asked Dr. Joanne Nyanyuki to explain the main reason of documenting civilian deaths now, apparently failing to do so in the past, she said, One of the reasons for us documenting this is to draw international attention to the continued violation of international humanitarian law by the U.S. government. And um, we are concerned that this increased number of airstrikes is going to continue based on the statistics we see in the last two years. We are further concerned that the U.S. government continues to deny absolutely deny that there have been civilian casualties, that civilians have died, civilians have been injured, and these are not just men, but even women and children. That was Dr. Joanne Nyanyuki, Amnesty International's Director for East Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Great Lakes regions. The special report that Amnesty International has released was investigated and prepared by Abdullahi Hassan, its researcher on Somalia. Hassan enlightens us on the report. This report specifically investigates cases that were carried out in the lower Shabelle region of Somalia, which is controlled by Al-Shabaab. We have interviewed many people in person in safe locations inside Somalia and outside of the lower Shabelle region. We have also interviewed people over the phone through encrypted phone calls because we know the U.S. and the Somali governments are monitoring uh, phone calls 
in the Al-Shabaab control areas and we have interviewed more than 150 eyewitnesses to these attacks, relatives of the individuals who were either killed or injured in the attacks. We have corroborating evidence, which is analysis of satellite imagery in the area of the attack. We have photos that have been taken after the airstrikes, and we have interviewed experts in this field, and we are confident that the evidence we have is enough to prove that at least 14 civilians were killed and eight more were injured in these five attacks carried out by the U.S. That was Amnesty International's researcher for Somalia, Abdullahi Hassan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The House of Representatives in Nigeria has called on security agencies to intensify their efforts in stemming the tide of attacks and killings in Kaduna State. The lawmakers made this call while adopting a motion brought under matters of urgent national importance. At least 30 people were killed and homes burnt in Kajuru local government area of Kaduna in what appeared to be a reprisal attack following earlier incidents in the area. Collins Atohengbe reports. What began like a skirmish in one community of the Adara in Kajuru local government area of Kaduna State has taken its toll on the entire ethnic group in about 10 communities, giving rise to some 10,000 refugees. The protest was a follow-up to the numerous joint communal peace meeting which has failed to yield any result because, despite pledges from stakeholders to maintain the status quo of peace, something often snaps, leading to a bloodbath in reprisal attacks. Leader and convener of the protests, the Reverend Father William Abba says when 10 Kadara indigents were killed about a week before the presidential election was postponed, the Kaduna state government did not say anything to show that it was aware of the development. On the 10th, we had the first bout of violence uh, when 10 uh, natives were killed. We didn't hear a word from the governor. Then a few days after, the governor came on national television to say that... Uh, uh, 66 Fulani were killed. For the first time, we'll hear an executive governor, uh, governor call out an ethnic group to say that they were the victims of, of violence. We were shocked at, at, at that kind of recklessness. So then, a few days after, again, we had to review the figures again to 166 and then uh, avert that there, could post, that there was the possibility of a reprisal attack. And from that, we took it that it was a direct invitation for anarchy and, 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 and attacks on our people. And a few days after the election, we actually saw that uh, they mobilized and came into our villages and started attacking our communities. And the result is that today we have over 130 that have died, 10,000 displaced, very many homes, uh, bands of food, burnt down to ashes. If the governor's speech came in much later, then what happened between the 10th and the eve of the postponed elections? The Cardinal State Governor, Nasser Erufai, says his fear was that there could be a reprisal against the indigents. 66 have been killed, that's the report that we got. Uh, the communities say that more than 70 have been buried. We got this information Friday morning from the Nigerian army and we made it public because we were afraid that if we kept quiet, if the Fulani communities do not understand that we have the information as government and we are doing something about it, there was likely going to be reprisals and we wanted to avoid that. In his response to the reported killings, the governor did not make mention of the killings of February 10, but went on to say 66 Fulanese had been killed just a day before the postponed election was to take place. But leaders of other communities 
where Fulanese and the indigents have been living together for decades now say there were no reported cases of attack apart from the incidents of February 10. Here is Usman Stingo in whose community the attack happened. This incident took place on Sunday the 10th of February. So if they are referring to this incident, certainly uh, it cannot be what they are saying. We expected government to have made a press release since either Monday or Tuesday at most. But if that reference is being made to this incident, then I am taken aback because we are not aware of any incident that took place in Kajiro local government as a whole. Friday, 15 February, no. Whatever the situation may have been, it is now known that 10,000 people have been rendered homeless and the community has been left in mourning. A member of the House of Representatives in the National Assembly, Bade Yakubu, representing Southern Kaduna, says it's no longer safe to go home to visit relatives. They burn down their houses. So people are rendered homeless. They have no food to eat. They have no clothes to wear. They have to live on the benevolence of Samaritans. I'm scared. I don't even know whether I'm happy in this kind of a system that I cannot really visit my loved ones, my relations in the village. It's so pathetic. They are living in fear. They cannot talk. They talk. They will be wiped out. Fear on every side, and the situation is begging for answer even as the local claims that the violence could not have come from the Fulanese people who lived amongst them, grazing their cattle without destroying farms. We highly suspect the Fulanese because we've been having skirmishes of their grazing into our farm lands, destroying our crops. There's no trace as to where they might have come from, for they came in the night, under night cover, and after they finished their operation, Nobody can tell exactly the direction they took. And what surprises us most is that there has never been any record of any clash between the Fulani and the native Adara. Our suspicion, anyway, is that it can never be the locals, the local Fulani that would, that would say maybe have been grazing their cattle into our farms and their, it cannot be them. It's very shocking to everybody around here. And we stand to say nothing like that has ever happened. I don't know whether it's a ploy to truncate the elections which was to take place on Saturday. But we are very happy you will be able to go and report exactly what your eyes saw and what you hear from the real people who are here and not from any other people. If these attackers are not known Fulanese, could they be the remnant of the ones whom the Cardinal State Governor Nasi Erufai admitted are foreigners whom he had to pay unspecified amount of money to persuade them to leave the people of Sata Kaduna alone? It could be that this latest protest in the nation's capital will catch the ears and eyes of the Buhari administration, which has the responsibility of securing the safety of Nigerians. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. 
With fears of rolling blackouts that could adversely affect vote counting, South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission, the IEC, says it will do everything possible to protect the integrity of the electoral process. Yesterday, the electoral body invited political parties to sign the Electoral Code of Conduct, which binds all parties contesting the elections. And so far, 48 parties have been admitted to contest the May elections, Debo Mugowo reports. With 49 days to go to elections, political parties contesting the elections have pledged to abide by the rules of the game by signing the Electoral Code of Conduct. And the IEC chairperson, Glenn Machinin, explains what the code compels parties to do. The purpose of the code is to promote conditions that are conducive to free and fair elections, which is characterized by tolerance of democratic political party activity and free political campaigning as well as open public debate. The code is as effective from the date of proclamation, which was the 26th of February. And this now remains in force until the announcement of the results. But the elephant in the room is ESCOM's rolling blackouts, which many believe could pose a threat to elections. Already some political parties are worried with the APC's timber code saying load shedding will be a serious threat to the voting process. The load shedding is actually a greater risk to free and fair elections than has been thought to experience before. A situation where there is sudden darkness at a voting station, either during voting or counting where ballot boxes cannot be seen, is a far, far much greater risk to the electoral process. We as the APC therefore calls on the IEC to have contingency plans so that we don't find a situation where the system is brought into disrepute because there was a prolonged period of darkness where there can be no accountability of what happened to the ballot boxes. But brief in the media after the signing of the Electoral Code of Conduct earlier today, the IEC Chief Electoral Officer Saima Mabulu assured South Africans that his team will do its best to safeguard the integrity of the elections. We are interacting with ESCOM. We've noted the pronouncements that they made yesterday. And given those pronouncements, we are going into a second tier a contingency plan to ensure that counting especially, because counting happens at night, is not disrupted if there isn't energy supply. And contingency plans, by their very nature, they're quite expensive because you've got to provide for every voting station almost double. But nonetheless, in order to protect the integrity of the electoral process, will spare no cent and will spare no effort to ensure that there is sufficient lighting inside voting stations on election day. And with fears that some police officers are threatening to go on strike possibly during election time, Mama Bulu said they are working with the police minister to ensure an event-free election period. We are developing a national election security plan together. They are bringing certain information to the table, there's certain information that we are bringing to the table, and that information together is being put into a national security plan for the election. And there's a national elections priority committee which meets regularly to update the plan, to monitor developments across the country, to make certain security decisions about how the election is going to be safeguarded. In the context of those engagements, the issue of the strike has not arisen. With a record of 48 political parties contesting the national elections this year, the IEC said this has put a strain on its budget. And although this is the highest number of political parties to contest elections since 1994, the Deputy Chief Electoral Officer Maseho Shiburi said many parties have fallen by the wayside. Close of nomination was on the 13th of 
March and political parties have until today at 1700 hours to correct deficiencies that are associated with their list. We estimate that there's about 23 parties that failed to meet the requirements to contest. In other words, a party attempted to make a submission but did not pay a deposit or a party made a deposit but did not submit a list of candidates. That's Masseho Shiburi from South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission ending that report by Ndebo Mugobo. A new law has been proposed in Uganda which would require musicians as well as film and theatre writers to submit their work for government approval before it's allowed to be performed. The law has been widely condemned by a number of prominent international artists including musician Bono, writer Margaret Artwood and playwright Wole Soyinka, and also by the man who many think the law is aimed at, the popular Ugandan protest singer Bobby Wine. So, why is the Ugandan government apparently determined to control what pop music its people listen to? As the BBC's Paul Moss reports, protest music is increasingly seen as a threat by rulers not just in Uganda, but across the African continent. This is a message to the government. There haven't been that many pop stars who double as MPs. Rather fewer still have also been arrested for treason. But that's been the fate, perhaps the boast, of the Uganda musician Bobby Wine. What was the purpose of the liberation when we can't have a peaceful transition? Bobby Wine has consistently used his songs to criticise Uganda's ruling politicians. But now, Bobby and others like him look set to face a new obstacle. I say we are fighting for freedom. A new law has been proposed which would require Uganda musicians to submit their songs for government approval before they could be performed. It's a blatant act of censorship, Bobby Wine says. They want to crack down on any creative work that is not in support of the regime. All music uh, productions and artistic productions, an artist is a mirror of society. That is what my people need. Some have suggested that what Uganda's people need is political and economic reform. The country's president, Yoweri Museveni, has been in office for 33 years. Elections there have been widely criticised as fixed. But the fact that the president apparently wants to set boundaries on what musicians can sing suggests that he and his government may well feel threatened by people like Bobby Wine, according to the campaign organisation Index on Censorship and its chief executive, Jody Ginsburg. They can use their art to send messages quite subversively often. So they don't necessarily have to be direct and explicit. They can say things in ways that perhaps politicians, ordinary people can't. Over in the west of Africa, the Nigerian singer Femi Kuti is also using his music to spread a political message. His lyrics are an explicit rejection not of one particular political party, but of an entire governing class. Femi Kuti is continuing a tradition begun by his even more famous father, the late Fela Kuti, whose own music took a political turn back in the 1970s. Speaking on a rather poor line from the Nigerian commercial capital, Lagos, Femi Kuti told me why he's following his father's approach and has now signed a petition against Uganda's new law. My 
father is a very good example of things we are addressing. Because when he was talking with his music, he was a lone voice at this time, speaking against corruption and injustice. And it is very important for the Ugandan government to withdraw that law for the sake of peace, unity and progress. But unity and progress are precisely the goals of Uganda's new law, according to a member of the government I managed to reach. Peace Mutuuzo is Uganda's culture minister. She didn't want to do a recorded interview, but told me that any government would be interested in the content of songs because, she said, songs should contribute to a country's economic and social goals. And she warned that music in particular needs to be controlled because it could be a source of division. In fact, there already seems to be plenty of division in Uganda. The past few years have seen a series of protests against the authorities. And this is a phenomenon increasingly seen across sub-Saharan Africa, according to John McDermott, Africa correspondent for The Economist magazine. The average age of an African is 20. The average age of an African leader is 62. And these young people, they are protesting, whether that is in Uganda or Kenya or Nigeria, whether it's on WhatsApp or Facebook or through the music they listen to. I don't think music can topple a regime. If one side has a guitar and the other side has a gun, there's only one side that's going to win. But what it does speak to is the increasing concern of a generation of African leaders that they are not creating enough opportunities for this swelling generation. That report by the BBC's Paul Moss. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The headlines of Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will address the Human Rights Day commemoration in Shampville in southern Gauteng later this morning. The day has its origins in the events that unfolded at the Sharpville and at Langa Township on the 21st of March in 1960 when apartheid police attacked protesters during peaceful anti-pass marches and killed 69 people. A week after Cyclone Adai hit Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, rescue teams are still racing to find and help survivors of the heavy floods. And New Zealand has announced it will ban all types of semi-automatic weapons used in the Christchurch terror attacks. Those are the stories making headlines.
Since 1994, the 21st of March has been observed as Human Rights Day here in South Africa in commemoration of the men and women who were slaughtered by apartheid police as they protested against past laws in Sharpville on this day in 1960. Let's listen to renowned South African poet Mzake Mbuli paying tribute to the victims of the Sharpville massacre. Shamville massacre of 1960. The apartheid regime was declared crime against humanity. In Shamville, 69 people were shot dead by racist police. 180 protesters were shot and wounded. Live ammunition used against defenseless and unarmed people. Victims were mostly shot at the back by merciless cops, shot in cold blood with impunity. What a shame, South Africa. What a shame. Lest we forget. An act of cowardice that tarnished the image of South Africa abroad. Thereafter, apartheid regime was declared a crime against humanity. The 1960 Shamville massacre, a massacre that changed the course of history, a massacre of the innocent, a massacre that ended passive resistance, a massacre that enraged the oppressed masses, a massacre that hardened the attitudes, a massacre that gave birth to armed struggle, MK, um, controversies with Apple, Apple, a massacre that led to punitive sanctions, a massacre that shocked the entire world. Yes, an act of cowardice that led to international isolation. Now, Shabiluna is in the Aba. Ugubamatafa namakumaya kuluma, ngabe sililo asipeli. 69 people shot dead in cold blood in protest against the past laws. The carrying of the Dom Pass. What a shame, South Africa. What a shame. Kuseshambi lapokwenzeka kona ispikongo. Kuseshambi lapokwa kritika kona ikazi. Kuseshambi lapokwa keleza kona ikazi. Kwa ungelona ikazi, lesi vodezi mbuzi. Kwa huikazi la makhawe na makhawe gazi. Amanta, mata, manda, matimba. Long live the spirit of Robert Sobukwe. Philip Hosana. Chaftama Semula. Stephen Bantu Biko, long live. Long live the spirit of Oliver Tambo Krisani, Nelson Holisha Samandela. Long live. Tamansa, Gawitu. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The 21st of March is considered World Down Syndrome Day. The day offers an opportunity to examine how the society treats these individuals and what improvements can be made to their lives through law and policy reforms, as well as through advocacy and awareness-raising interventions. According to the World Health Organization, Down Syndrome is a fairly prevalent condition. To speak to us more about this, we are joined on the line by Nicole Breen, Project Leader for Information and Awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health. Nicole, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Nicole, in a nutshell, what is Down syndrome and what are the causes? Down syndrome is an intellectual disability where a person has an extra chromosome. It is a mild to moderate form of intellectual disability and, as you say, is relatively prevalent. Now, why do we need to commemorate events like World Down Syndrome Day? 
Um, it's difficult to raise awareness surrounding um, the plight of people with Down syndrome because for um, millennia, such individuals have been discriminated against um, and um, often institutionalized where this is not necessary. They've been prolifically denied the right to things like education and employment, um, which um, has the effect that they are left to languish, unable to lead meaningful and productive lives. And how do organizations such as your organization use such days to bring the plight of people with the condition to the fore? Well, um, we've incorporated um, World Down Syndrome Day into a larger campaign that we're conducting. Um, The month of March is Intellectual Disability Awareness Month, and we've embarked on a three-part campaign. Um, The first part concerns itself with education, the second with employment, and the third with living um, in one's community. Um, So um, what we are doing specifically with regard to Down Syndrome Day is um, a um, media campaign um, examining these three legs of our campaign, and um, or our broader campaign, rather, um, and looking at um, what people um, with Down syndrome are entitled to and what we should be demanding for them. Why are people with Down syndrome often denied the opportunity to live fulfilling lives, not included on an equal basis with others and in many aspects of society? Well, um, as I said, this is connected to deep-seated and deep rooted and stigma that um, has essentially always been prevalent. You know, people feel what they don't understand. And um, many members of society fail to take proactive steps to learn about things like Down syndrome and um, to um, understand and to gain a sense of empathy for such individuals, but also to understand how they can be empowered, to understand their capabilities, to understand what is possible for them and how um, they can have, you know, um, a fulfilling life with, um, you know, uh, at least um, a relative and most often large um, degree of independence. Now, is there a way we can deal with the stigma, firstly, um, that people with Down syndrome are sometimes subjected to. And, uh, you know, is it a case of people just not understanding or not being educated about Down syndrome? Well, I think what we need to remember is that the state is a primary duty bearer in this regard. So um, government must um, embark on um, advocacy initiatives to ensure that perceptions do change. Um, members of the public um, also need to see to it that they become um, educated surrounding um, conditions such as Down syndrome, and that um, you know they um, come to a realization that um, there is no need. Well, there's no need to discriminate anyone, but discriminate against anyone. But um, there's specifically for these purposes, no need to discriminate against people with Down syndrome to regard them as being um, incapable or unworthy. Um, I think um, that um, there are different resources a person can access. Um, so, um, of course, you know, there's information online, but there's also organizations you can reach out to. Um, for example, Down Syndrome South Africa, um, our organization, um, one of um, 
are 17 constituent organizations located countrywide. And we also have um, a um, guidebook on um, supporting a loved on um, for loved ones supporting um, people with um, intellectual disabilities. So there is information out there that can facilitate, facilitate the diminution of stigma. Do we have enough advocacy and awareness-raising initiatives to dispel the stigma surrounding the condition? I would say absolutely not. I would say that um, the vast majority of um, members of society do not understand, you know, what Down syndrome is, you know, let alone um, how to, um, you know, um, how to accept and be kind to and give opportunities to such individuals. Um, I would say that um, there needs to be a lot more campaigns um, embarked upon by um, the state in particular, but also by civil society, also um, by community members and family members and other loved ones um, of people with Down syndrome to ensure that stigma is dispelled. Are you, Nicole, encouraged by efforts to put in place um, policies that will ensure that people with Down syndrome function well within different environments? Um, we um, we would definitely encourage this. Um, so um, we um, would look, for example, and the Mental Health Policy Framework and Strategic Action Plan is kindly the um, policy document um, governing large portions of um, mental health issues. And um, the policy trajectory comes to an end next year. So we would encourage the policy to be reviewed and to um, include discussions specifically of how to include um, people with um, intellectual disabilities, specifically um, with regard to um, them um, being um, placed in their communities, with regard to um, Employment, you know, and look at better implementing provisions of legislation such as the Basic Conditions of Employment Act and Labor Relations Act, with regard to education, um, looking at um, better implementing education, White Paper 6, um, which is the main policy document on um, disability for, or education for learners with disabilities. Um, so there's a lot that could be done. Um, and, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it um, doesn't necessarily involve creating something new, but rather build, building onto what the, what already exists, or just implementing what is already there but just not implemented. In terms of timeframes, like what are you hoping, or when are you hoping these policies and laws will be put in place, and uh, that uh, it's it's eventually uh, you know put out there legally? Well. Um, the mental health policy framework, as I said, its trajectory um, expires in the year 2020. So it really is a matter of urgency that um, a policy document is enacted to replace that or that the trajectory is um, extended. Either way, um, concrete steps need to be taken to ensure that there is a valid policy document providing for and protecting the rights of people with mental illnesses and intellectual disabilities. Um, with regard to... Um, the other two regarding employment and education, um, it's, um, you know, the trajectory of um, education white paper six also um, expires um, in the next um, two years or so, I, I believe. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and um, so um, what, I, what I would say there is that, um, 
you know, that, that particular policy implementation needs to be expedited and plans need to be made to, um, you know, um, continue doing that work or continue implementation or, you know, continue with an amended um, document uh, format um, to continue with an amended document that will um, be more implementable. Um, I would also say that, um, you know, um, it's um, important that um, we consider international law um, and the need to implement that in our country, and that will involve um, compiling new legislation and um, disability-specific legislation, um, which, um, you know, in, in order for um, a, a bill to be passed into an act, you know, um, it, it takes a relative amount of time. So um, that would unfortunately take um, a couple of years before it became a reality. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's Nicole Breen, a project leader for information and awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health, joining us on the line. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Our economics update up next with Tabusolo Hoko. Good morning. The Postal and the Telecommunications Regulatory Authority of Zimbabwe has summoned Dissolve Zimbabwe for questioning over its unauthorized data tariff increase. Zol Zimbabwe, a subsidiary of Liquid Telecom Group, announced that starting April the 1st, 2019, tariffs would be offered in the United States, or RTGS dollars, effectively increasing the tariffs following the devaluation of the RTGS dollar against the greenback. The tariff increase came before parties made a decision on a request by Telecom's players for an upward review 
of tariffs. The Competition Commission Authority of Kenya has approved the acquisition of a West Pocot-based cement business, Semtech Limited, by Simba Cement Limited in a move that is set to give the factory a lifeline after several failed attempts to start operations. The regulator gave Simba Cement a subsidiary of the DevKey group of companies as a go-ahead to buy 100% of the business and assets of Semtech owned by Indian conglomerate Sangi Group. Following the nod, DevKey Group is set to acquire all its land, intellectual property, business records, equipment, goodwill, licenses, stock and third-party rights for an undisclosed amount of money. South African analysts say the latest retail trade figures are an indication of lower consumer confidence. Statistics South Africa has reported a marginal 1.2% increase in retail trade sales in January 2019 compared to last year. The largest contribution came from the pharmaceuticals and medical goods, cosmetics, toiletries and general dealers. Chief economist at NetBank, Denise Dykes, says that the number is disappointing. I think most people anticipated there'd be a little bit of a, an uptick. So 1.2% is still very, very modest. Uh, you know, uh, when the economy is running normally, you should be seeing uh, growth in excess of, of 3%. So the still remains very, very weak. So I wouldn't read too much into it. And uh, another indication that things are, are not all well with the consumer is that uh, purchases of food, for example, are down in real terms over the year. The International Monetary Fund Board has concluded the final review on Ghana, bringing an end to the Extended Credit Facility Program. This was after the IMF staff concluded the 7th and 8th review earlier this year. The IMF Board has concluded the final review on Ghana, bringing an end to the Credit Facility Program. Namibia's Mines Minister Tom Aluwindo has announced that Namib Desert Diamonds, Namdia, has received 78 applications from potential diamond buyers around the world. Aluwindo said this in the National Assembly in response to questions from RDP member Mines of the applicants or whether the buyers who 40 South African Rand. 75 pence, British pound, 87 cents euro, gold, 1,302 dollars, platinum, 857 dollars per ounce, Brent crude oil, 67 dollars, 90 cents a barrel. Channel Africa, Tabisodohoku, South Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we're kicking off with football news. Netherlands-based South African striker Lars Feldweg believes that he has a role to play in the Bafana Bafana squad and is honored to have been called up again to represent the country in the critical 2019 CAF African Cup of Nations qualifier against Libya this coming weekend. Feldweg has been called up to the senior national team for the second time in two years and believes that his strength can assist the team against the North Africans should he be given a starting berth. 
the 1.96 meter tall striker was called up to Bafana Bafana back in 2016 during the FIFA World Cup qualifier against Senegal and although he did not feature in the match he was happy to be part of the camp. Bafana Bafana currently sits second in Group E with nine points and will need a draw or better against Libya to qualify for the 2019 CAF African Cup of Nations to be played in Egypt from the 21st of June to the 19th of July. Over the past week, Kutzenberg Stadium in Stellenbosch, Cape Town, has been the host for the 2019 South African Sports Association for the Physically Disabled National Championships. With the 2020 Paralympics in Tokyo 18 months away, the championship is a key tournament for athletes and swimmers hoping to represent the country in Japan. Susped President Mugi Khrobelar says the week has gone very well, and while she had hoped to see a world record or two broken, she's happy to see a few athletes already getting qualification times. Very well, very well. Yeah, I know it's, it's beautiful and it's nice and we've got the correct, you know, the right, the weather and everything, yeah. So we can't complain, really. We just, we were just, I'm um, just, we have hoped for at least one world record, which obviously we now missed yesterday, but unfortunately, but it was like so close, yeah. Yeah, but we've got a couple of qualifiers, right? Eh? She says 2019 is a big year for athletes hoping to qualify for Tokyo. And later this year, there will be both the World Para Swimming Championships and the World Para Athletics Championships. The, the swimming qualifiers first, which is going to be in August. Um, they're still just sorting out which country because it was supposed to be in Malaysia. Maybe it's still going to be there, we don't know. Um, it was just um, certain countries they didn't want to allow and so it causes a bit of a you know political problem. But... Maybe that's gonna, but that's gonna be in August, and then in November it's going to be the Athletics Worlds, which is gonna be in Dubai. The championships will conclude today with a closing ceremony at 4 p.m. Central African time. On to rugby news, the South African rugby side Bulls will be without Springbok fullback Warwick Highland when they take on the Chiefs in the Super Rugby Encounter at Loftus First Ferdin Pretoria. On Saturday, Helen suffered a shoulder injury at training on Tuesday and has been replaced by Divan Rousseau, while former captain Berger Odendal returns at inside center in place of Dylan Sage, who drops to the bench. What he got up uh, yesterday, he had a uh, shoulder injury. He will be available next week again. We just took him out this week. He's not 100%. I think Tamagawa is on the bench with Eli's name on. I kept the same locks. I think they did very well last week, um, two weeks ago, against the Sharks. And I know, we all know it's going to be very physical, and they were very physical against the Sharks. We bring uh, uh, Ron Steenkamp back. He had an awesome uh, uh, season up till his uh, concussion. That's why he's back in the mix. Berger, for, yeah, he's, he's, he was the, he's one of the leaders, and he's an awesome player. So he just eases up, also deserves his place back because he was also awesome before his injury. And finally, rain again spoiled the Miami Open party, wiping out the evening session on Wednesday and adding to what has been a soggy and dejecting kickoff to a tournament looking for a new start. A move from the cramped Crandon Park on picturesque key Biscayne to the wide open spaces at Hard Rock Stadium was hoped to provide the Miami Open with a bright future. But so far, Dark storm clouds have cast a wet shadow over proceedings. Prior to the start of the tournament, officials had boasted a 25% jump in ticket sales, but the stands have been mostly empty through two days with only one of four sessions completed. Organizers have now been left with a backlog of matches to schedule and sending out refunds. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the sour Concerns over killings in Nigeria's Kaduna state Amnesty International accuses U.S. forces of killing civilians in Somalia and South African parties vow to respect electoral code of conduct ahead of elections. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Tandiswa with a song titled Nizalangobani. Today is Human Rights Day in South Africa and today must always be remembered and commemorated for the lives lost all those years ago in 1960. A blessed day. <laughs>